listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. great to be here this morning. Uh, if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. Um, it's worth coming up here to get to see Jake play the drums and to hear David uh, lead worship and just to have the assurance in my heart um, and hopefully in your heart that the gospel goes forth. Um, yesterday, we had the privilege at the Christmas parade in Locust Grove to be able to pass out, uh, I don't know how many uh, invitations to our church. Um, we shared the gospel uh, quite a few times through the gospel bracelets. And so the gospel goes forth, and that ought to be one of our deepest concerns. Is the gospel going forth from our church? Is the gospel going forth uh, from our life? As we look at First John and we talk about love, I want to just introduce it by uh, acknowledging a couple of things this morning. Uh, a couple of different categories before we talk about the category of love. Um, think about the word anger. And honestly, we don't have to think about it much. Anchor, anger shows up uninvited, right? It just comes out. Whether you're driving over here this morning like I was and someone had the audacity to pull out in front of me when no one was behind me. Something inside just began to stir, and I began to uh, imagine characterizations about that person and how I would love to get up on their bumper and incite fear in their heart and in mind. And I've got to preach this morning. But we understand anger. It comes out at our spouses. It comes out at strangers. It comes out at our children. It comes out over the, the, the most menial things. It just is right there and always ready, even when we don't expect it. I think we also know indifference. I think the little handheld computers that we carry everywhere we go help facilitate, help uh, feed our indifference. When we, many of you are going to go to lunch today and everybody at the table is going to have their head neck deep in a little, you know, two by four screen to the indifference toward those that sit are seated around the table with you, and particularly your children that one day are going to grow up, get married, leave you, have their own kids, and forget about you at Christmas. You can hear a little bitterness in my heart as it relates to that. We know anger and we know indifference, but I don't think we know love like we should. I don't think we know love like John is talking about love this morning. And then, then when we find ourselves in a highly doctrinal environment or high, highly moral environment, those things are emphasized. And if somebody comes along and wants to talk about love, they're probably characterized as a liberal because that's what the liberals talk about. And by the way, it's a whole lot easier to be morally correct and doctrinally astute than it is to be biblically loving. We need to take that into consideration. This morning, we're going to talk about love, and we're going to talk about love in Christ and Christ coming and showing his love for us and dying for us. 
But what is love? And there are many inadequate definitions. There are many inadequate examples and explanations that the world tries to offer. But they all break down because we are all broken down as human beings because we are broken in the fall of man. Our inability to love, our inability to understand love, our inability to express love, our inability to sustain love goes all the way back to Genesis 3 when we as human beings fundamentally in our nature shifted away from loving God and each other to loving ourselves, and to loving sensuality and to loving pleasure and to loving idolatry. So we, along with the world, are looking for love in all the wrong places while we say all we need is love, we just don't seem to be able to find it because of the fall. We're fallen. We're broken. We're sinners. In 1 John chapter 4, we see the antithesis to the world's understanding of love. Love is not man-centered. Love is not me-centered. Love is not self-centered. He basically says it like this, and it can't be said any better. It can't be said any clearer. It can't be said any more profoundly. It can't be said any deeper. It can't be defined in any other way than the way John lays it out for us. God is love, and love is God. That seems like an oversimplification, but if you try too hard to manipulate it or explain it, you end up explaining it away. John is telling us that you can't know the love of God that you long for, and you can't give the love that you desire to give to others apart from God being in you and doing something inside of you to fundamentally change who you are, to change your nature. The word love is given to us in the Scriptures in its basic form 744 times in the Greek and in the Hebrew. And in these six verses that we'll look at this morning, we're going to see this word love, agape, 13 times. Let me give you the definition of the word love before we start reading it these 13 times in these six verses. It is a divine love. It means affection, care, interest, cherishing, taking pleasure in. It is a love that enjoys its object. Agape love is decisive love. It is determined love. It is a choosing rational love. In other words, the love that God has for us and the love that he intends for us to have for each other is a love that he sets on us out of his nature and that we, out of our transformed nature, should set on each other. Don't miss that this morning. It's a love that sets its affection upon an object or a recipient, and it doesn't waver with feeling, emotion, or circumstance. We don't know that kind of love. We don't give that kind of love. We don't receive that kind of love. Agape love is the love that the Father and the Son have for each other. It's the love that exists among the Trinity, according to John 17. And now John here, the apostle of love who has written for us the gospel and the epistle and the revelation is explaining to us what love is. He's writing to discouraged believers. Some would say that he wrote in 90 AD from the Isle of 
Patmos, and he has covered some very important ground in this book of 1 John. He's covered the issue of fellowship and sonship, and as he is writing and teaching, he, he writes and teaches all the way up to 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 6, but when he comes to 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 7, John is giving us a summation, making application of what he has taught throughout the book, and there are three things that he is emphasizing as he closes out his writing. He's emphasizing doctrine, and doctrine is important, but by the way, with great doctrine and no love, you might as well go get a big spoon and a trash can lid and beat it and make a noise that nobody wants to hear. 1 Corinthians 13, right? He's also talking about how we should live morally, obedience, that's important. Morality and obedience are important, but they are putrid and they are ugly and they are arrogant and they are pharisaical apart from a heart that is driven by love. And finally, John talks about as he closes out over and over again in these few verses to end First John, he talks about love. He keeps coming back to love. In fact, if you look at chapter 1 and verse number 3, you can see him emphasizing it here, he says in 1 John, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship with this is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He's talking about this relationship that we have in Christ. And then he goes on in chapter 2 and verse number 1. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. We see this deep love that the Father has for us through his finished Work. But when we come to chapter 4, and I want to read the text this morning, just these few verses, think through it with me, and I'm going to break it down and try to make some application this morning. First of all, we see this clear command, verses one and, verses, verses 7 and 8, not verses 1 and 2, the first two verses. We see this clear command, beloved, 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 just, we can just stop there. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. Somebody needs to hear that. Those who have had love set upon them, beloved. Do, do you walk in here today with the assurance that you are loved? And by the way, we desperately need that for life. Beloved, what an identity, what a name, what a description. Beloved, that's, that's where everything is springing from. That's where everything is springing from. This is, this is the well of our love for others. This is the, the wellspring of our love for each other that we were first loved, and now he is calling us Beloved, we need to let that soak in. We need to close our eyes. We need to try to experience that in this moment. Until we do, we don't need to read any other words in the text. Beloved is the name for Christ. It is the identity of those that are in Christ. 
Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. You cannot say that you know God and be unloving. So we see this command. Secondly, when we come to verse 9, we see this manifestation. I'm using the words that are in the text. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. And he gives us two things, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. The first thing we see in the text is this, that the love of God is life-giving. It is life-giving. There are expectations of us as believers, not because we generate the spiritual life. There is this expectation of loving one another, not because we generate love from ourselves or we generate life from ourselves. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. The love of God is life-giving so that we might live through him. That's the first manifestation. The manifestation is that Jesus Christ came and gave life through his son. But we see in verse number 10, not only is love life-giving, but love is sin-bearing. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God is the very one that was sinned against, but he is going to take our sin and put it on his son, and he is going to use his son to satisfy himself on behalf of our sins. You say, God is satisfied with the death of his son like I'm satisfied when I eat a slice of egg custard pie. The word satisfaction means there is a debt that is owed that has to be paid and that debt can only be paid with your death or my death for our sin. But God sent his son and his son died and his son paid the debt and therefore satisfied the requirements of our debt to almighty God for our sin. Therefore, our sins are born and life has been given to us and we are new people. How is the love of God manifested? The love of God is manifested in that his love is life-giving and his love is sin-bearing. Don't miss that. Life-giving and sin-bearing. We see the command. We see the manifestation but thirdly, we see the application. It couldn't be clearer. Beloved, again, that beautiful word, he brackets the passage with the assurance that we should come to that this is our identity. This is who I am in Christ. I am beloved. If God so loved us, if God loved us like that, if God's love for us was life-giving and sin-bearing. Watch. We also ought to love one another. Verse 12 is so cool. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And while they may not see God, and while they may not see God, 
they will see him in us when we love one another. That is so profound and so simple. What do we see in the exhortation? I'm going to go back to verses 7 and 8. He's basically saying, let us continue to love one another. What is he telling us in these two verses? Very simply, he's saying there is this conspicuous presence of love in verse number 7. John is deeply concerned about how the church relates, and he's writing to them, calling them beloved, understanding that the love of Christ has been set upon them, that their sin debt has been paid, that life has been given to them, and now as he communicates with them, he is telling them, when he tells them to love one another, he is telling them to unleash and release what is already inherently in them by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let me make a couple of perhaps controversial statements as we think about verse 7. Here's what he would be saying to us. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, by the way, if uh, you question my credibility. There is nothing that says more about the authenticity of our faith and how we love one another. There is nothing that says more about the authenticity of our faith than how we love one another. He tells us in the text that love is from God. Love flows from God. Love is not self-generated. Love does not come from within me. It does not originate within me. In fact, let me tell you what is in me. Go to James chapter 4 and verse 1. Where's all this anger? Where's all this passion? Where's all this indifference that treats people like they don't exist? It's boiling up inside of my unregenerate heart. But there is a love that doesn't originate within me that is not a part of my natural man that comes from God. And his conclusion in verse 7 is this. So, so if we say that we have God inside of us, love should be coming out of us because love is from him. If we have been born of God, we will love. If we have been born and love is generated out from us, from him, we will know him. Love is the evidence of spiritual knowledge, according to John in his writing. The conspicuous presence of love. But secondly, we see in verse 8, the conspicuous absence of love. Here's what John is saying. Anyone, anywhere, for, for any reason who does not love, who does not love other people, who does not love God, people who do not love one another absolutely do not know God. Anyone, anyone, anywhere, at any time, under any circumstance who does not love God does not know God because God is love. And if you know God, you love He's running it back and forth from, from, from the beginning to the end, to the end back again. So I would challenge you with those thoughts. There are many who say, I love the Word of God. But they're angry people. What's up with that? Did you know some of the most bitter arguments in the church? Do you know people in the church have killed one another? 
over their love for God's Word. And I'm not espousing that, by the way. I'm just saying that a lot of times we don't love God and we don't love people. We just love to be right. And the desire to be right, and by the way, I'm 64, just turned 64. And you, you might would think that after somebody's been around for 64 years that they would think they were more right than they ever have been. And I want to tell you that, that I think I know less than I've ever known, and I think I'm wrong about what I, most of what I thought I knew to begin with. I believe God's Word is true. I believe God's Word is right. But I do believe there's a, a strong possibility that I could be wrong. I'm settled in God's word, but a lot of times we're like, man, I love the truth. I love the truth. And really, we're saying, I love to be right. I love to be right. And, and we love to be right because when we're wrong, shame grips our heart. And when shame grips our heart, it creates contempt. Contempt can walk into a love-filled room and stink it up. You've been there. And, and I just want to challenge you to think about your love. It is great to love the truth. I love the truth. But if that love for the truth is not enveloped into your love for God and your desire to know him relationally and experientially through his word then we will find ourselves keyboard warriors. We will find ourselves gravitating to websites. We will find ourselves embroiled in all kinds of arguments where out of our proclamation for the love of truth, our hearts will be filled with contempt and our desire to be right and our reasoning, desire to prove our reasoning perfect will put us in a place where we're demeaning where we're hateful, where we're unloving. And John is telling us this morning that there is this conspicuous absence of love. He, he goes back in earlier text here and references Cain. What happened to Cain? Here's what happened to Cain. Abel was right. What happened when Abel was right? Cain was wrong. What happened when Cain was wrong? Shame gripped his heart. What happens when shame grips our heart? If we don't run to the cross and say, Lord Jesus, I want to be right based on what you have done instead of I want to be right in the essence of who I am, our hearts are filled with contempt. And then we move toward others with a murderous spirit. That's what anger is. The conspicuous absence of love. He covers it here. That's the exhortation. Secondly, the manifestation. The manifestation, verse 9, God's love is life-giving. In this is love that God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son of the world, that we might live through him. He is life. That is Advent. That is Christmas. That is why we preach on love at Advent. Let me just give you a synopsis of what he is saying. Holy God was offended in the fall, and he sent his son to a fallen, hostile, angry, dead world. That's the first advent. He came to human beings who were deservedly dead because of their sin. 
And he came to those dead people and he gave them his life. John chapter 1 and verse number 4. In him was life, right? He is life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. I've come that you might have life, that you might have it more abundantly. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. When Christ, who is your life, appears, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us he made us alive. We live through him. We come to life because of his death for our sin in our place. And the living Christ comes to live in us. And the life that we have, if it is life at all, is the life of Jesus Christ. The life that flows out of him should be flowing out of us toward one another. He took our sin. He took our death. He died our death in our place. And he has given to those who trust him his life. Secondly, the manifestation is that God's love is sin-bearing. Verse number 10, look at it carefully. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Since love is generated outside of us, love then is based on regeneration. We don't, apart from God, love God. If any of us ever love God or anyone else, it is solely based on who God is and what he has done and to him be all the glory. And God sent his son to be the propitiation. We see that in 1 John 2, 2. God is justly and rightly, righteously angry at sin and sinners. He is holy. That's not a bad thing. That's a, a good thing to say. God is right, God is just, and God is righteously angry at sin and sinners. He is holy. But the word propitiation means simply this, a means of appeasing anger or averting wrath. Jesus Christ was the means of appeasing anger or averting God's wrath on us as sinners. God sent his son as a means of appeasing his anger and wrath on behalf of our sin. He sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sin to satisfy his requirements. And he did this because he is loving. In other words, the text is saying, in this is love. God sent his son. In this is love to be the propitiation. So, again, recapping, there is legitimate offense and instead of holy God setting the, settling the offense by punishing the offender, he sends his perfectly innocent and holy son and punishes him instead of us so that he can accept us unconditionally into his presence. In this is love. Love is life-giving. Love is sin-bearing. The application. Beloved, those who were loved. Since God is love and has generated life in us, since God has loved us like this, we ought to love one another. 
This is the model for our love for each other. He gives us the command, beloved, let us love one another. He gives us this, this manifestation of love, but now this love is the model for our love. The command, and he shows us and he tells us how to do it. So how should we love one another? As we think about Advent and Christ coming, and this is why Christ came, then the, the greatest thing that we could ever do as a celebration or a manifestation of Advent or Christ coming into the world is us going into the world and doing two things. Number one, being life-giving, and number two, being sin-bearing. Our love should be life-giving. Now, I, I can't tell you how to do this. There's no checklist all I can tell you is that when I experience its presence or absence, I know it. Some people, when you get around them, they are life-giving. Some people, when you get around them, they are life-draining. Some people, when you get around them, the life of God is flowing out of them and their spirit is life-giving and they are curious and they are caring and they are interested and they are hopeful and they are gracious and you feel lifted up even when life is painful or difficult. This is the kind of love that is supposed to be the staple of the church. This is the kind of love that is supposed to be the atmosphere of the body of Christ. And unfortunately, too often it's not, which means perhaps there are many in the body of Christ that don't know Christ because they are not life-giving. I, I thought about it this week and I wrote down a few thoughts. Well, what does it look like to be life-giving? And I thought about the word Emmanuel. Right? Emmanuel. God with us. What does it mean to be life-giving? Four-letter word, with. With. Just be with somebody. Can, can we slow down for a minute? Can we forget about our checklist? Can we forget about our to-do list? Can we forget about our utilitarianism? Can we forget about our acquisition? Can we forget about stuff that we need to do? I mean, we need to cut the grass, but guess what? You're going to need to cut it tomorrow, and you needed to cut it yesterday. And even if you cut it today, you're going to need to cut it next week. How bad do you really need to cut the grass? Maybe you need to put Roundup on it, right? I mean, we just, we just got all these things we just need to do. We just need to do. You got, you got all these things you need to do to make Christmas what it should be. But what if you just sat down with somebody? A couple of Christmases ago, our kids were all there. We have, have four kids. They're all married, and they all have between them 11 grandkids, and I've got a 12th one on the way in January, and I was in the kitchen doing something, you know, something I had to do. I don't do good in the kitchen. I can, I can, I can vacuum the fool out of the carpet in the hardwoods, but, but don't, don't put me in the kitchen. By the way, guys, a good way to stay out of the kitchen for you young married folks, burn something, mess something up. She'll never ask you to cook again. Even if you're a good cook, just mess something up. My wife walked in the kitchen where I was, and she said, she said, I can just die and go to heaven now. I said, well, what's up? She said, well, all my children are just sitting in there, just enjoying talking to each other. And their wives, they're just enjoying talking to each other. 
That, that's more beautiful than a new car. That's more beautiful than a manicured lawn. Right? That's more beautiful than, than, than crown molding. It just is. Because there's nothing any more beautiful than relational beauty. There just isn't. And Christ loved us and he came and he was with us. And one of the greatest things that we can do in loving others is just being with them, just being with each other. I, th I thought too, how does Christ love us? He communicates with us. He talks to us. He gives us his word, right? There's nothing that is any more powerful. I say two of the most powerful things that God ever created is beauty. You can look at beauty and it will capture you. It will enrapture you. It will lift you. It will take you to a completely different place because you will be in awe of him and his beauty and his creation. But also there's nothing more powerful than a word. I'm not in the word of faith. Don't get sidetracked. I believe God's word is absolutely authoritative and powerful, but I also believe that we can speak words that give life relationally, and man, we can speak words that are like the thrashing of a sword. How can we be life-giving? We can be life-giving by our presence. We can be life-giving by our words. Think about it. A lot of our words carry sarcasm. A lot of our words carry contempt. A lot of us are dragging a bunch of stuff, baggage from our past. And when we have conversations, it just, like a bad case of the flu, we just throw it up on everybody everywhere we go through our words. Words are powerful. We can give life by our countenance. So where are you getting all that from? The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. There is nothing that says I love you probably any more loudly than when you look in the eyes and you look at the facial expression of somebody that really loves you and without a word being said and you look at their countenance, you say, man, I felt loved by that person just by the way they looked at me. By the way, that's probably why you're married to the person that you're married to now. Now, they haven't looked, looked at you like that for 50 years. But man, when they looked at you, you just, something, something happened. Folks, you need to think about Christ's love for us, and you need to think about that we should love the way he loved, and when we love like he loved, we are life-giving. But secondly, when we love like he loved, we are sin-bearing. But let's be honest, when someone sins against us, we want to get even whether it's my wife or my brother or my sister or my mom or my best friend. You offend me, you cross the line, I have now a right to get even because we're all about getting even. We're all about justice, right? We want to make it right. We want to even the score comes out of us all of the time. I'm amazed at church discipline. I've had people come to me and they're offended by somebody and they want to bring somebody up on charges. 
Any, anytime church discipline is not about restoration and it's not about redemption and it's not about the purification of the church, but it's some personal offense that you've experienced that you want to bring before the church or somebody that you're angry at or maybe somebody that's enjoying their sin and you're jealous. Anytime that it is not loving and a desire to get even, then we're not manifesting the love of Christ. Our love should give us the capacity to set people free from sin. Man, there, there are so many of us in this room today that need to be set free. And the only way we can be set free is if we set others free. The, the, the burden of sin that others have placed on us, the burden of sin that we place on ourselves, and the burden of sin that we place on others just screams from our lives. Our love should give us the capacity to set people free, not hold them in bondage. Why? Because we have been forgiven, and we can forgive others based on the gracious forgiveness that was afforded to us through the finished work of Christ. Love is sin-bearing. Not that I'm going to bear your sin, but I'm going to trust the fact that Christ has borne your sin. And if Christ has borne it, what right do I have to approach you as though you owe me for your sin? That's what we do. There are those of you sitting in this room angry right now because you have legitimately been sinned against and you refuse to give it up because you've been done wrong. Holy, holy, holy you. There, there is freedom that awaits. But by the way, we need to be present with people in their lives so that we can manifest that sin bearing. You say, where are you getting that from? Bear you one another's birds and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let me just give you an example. I'm, I'm way over time this morning. I went to my first church in, the, in 1983. Most of you weren't born then. Um, and, and, and that's okay. And I had the task of doing everything the pastor didn't want to do. I was 25 years old, had a newborn kid, Gretna, Louisiana, middle of nowhere. Louisiana, New Orleans, metro New Orleans areas. I mean, it's a foreign country if you've ever been there, if you've ever lived there. If you ever lived there, I don't want to talk to you, okay? Uh, I just don't, I already, I already don't like you if you're from, Louis, from the New, metro New Orleans area. Um, it, was, it was just a tough life, and uh, I had the responsibility of filling up the baptistry. And so one Friday afternoon, I went in, and I filled, started filling up the baptistry, turned the water on, got it going, and then went on and lived my life the way I normally live my life on Friday afternoon, Friday evening, Saturday morning. We had a men's Bible study at First Baptist Church of Terrytown in Gretna, Louisiana. And while I was sitting there in Bible study, I remembered that I turned the baptistry on yesterday afternoon at about 3 o'clock. I turned white. I'm, I'm whiter than I already am. <laughs> and I jumped up and I ran into the little auditorium and I looked into baptistry like Niagara Falls running over the front edge of the baptistry. Water was a third of the way up the little sloped auditorium. It had just filled the room up. 
probably my predominant emotion or feeling is that I'm an idiot, right? I don't know if anybody else can relate to that, but when they look in the mirror, it's just like, you're an idiot, you know? It's, okay, thank you. Uh, we, we live at Atlanta Motor Speedway just temporarily. We sold our house, and we live in this uh, condo, and it's got mirrors everywhere, and I, I told, I'm just so tired of looking at myself. <laughs> you know, you get on the elevator to ride down, and there's mirrors in the elevator, and it's like, and they, they, they just aren't really good mirrors. I mean, I look, <laughs> look like I'm 64 in those mirrors, and I hate that, but... Uh, um, but that's what I thought, just idiot, idiot. I ran in, and there was a room full of men. There was about 20 of them, and I told them what I did, and every single one of them jumped up. They grabbed the wetbacks. They grabbed the, the brooms. They grabbed everything. You know, not a single person looked at me and said, you are an idiot. Not a, not a single one of them said, all right, he did it. Let him figure it out. Let him pay for it. He needs to learn his lesson. You know what they did? They jumped in there and started mopping water. They started calling around to rental places. And they jumped in there and they started getting that water up, just like they're the ones that let the baptistry run over. They said, hey, brother, your problem is our problem. You belong to us. And if you mess up, we're in it with you. And we're going to help you. We're going to love you. We are going to be bearers of whatever is wrong with you. We sit around in life group and we talk about a lot of stuff. But when we talk about our struggles, the challenge that we have for each other is this. Hey, can you, can you bear that? Our brother will say, man, I can bear that. I can handle that. I'll take that with you. I'll walk through that with you. In this, he said, he said, nobody's seen God at any time. But if you want to put God on display, you love one another and let your love be life-giving and sin-bearing. I think about the kids in this church in Locust Grove. And um, your kids are going to leave home and they're going to leave probably 10 different views. They're going to, you, you, you say, well, we believe in baptism by immersion, but my kids are now going to a church where they're baptizing babies. What in the world are we going to do? Or maybe they're using the King James or maybe, maybe they're, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe they believe in premillennialism and the rapture and maybe they read the left behind books. I don't know. You got, we, got all, we got all kind of stuff we worry about. Your kids are going to go in a million different directions, and they're going to come up with different moral perspectives. They're going to come up with different doctrinal perspectives. What do they need to leave South Point with? What is going to radically transform their life? What is the thing that is going to cause them to walk out their door, these doors and undeniably be able to say God is real and His Word is true? It's not the doctrine class, and I'm all for doctrine, by the way. I got, I've read them all, and I've got bookshelves full of them, and I love it, and it's good. But it's not the doctrine. That's not what they're going to leave with and say, man, I'll tell you what, our church was doctrinally correct. It's not going to be the morality. that There is nothing that you and I can do to overcome TikTok. It just owns us. 
You know what it's going to be? And this is what he's saying in verse 12. You know what it's going to be? It's going to be in that church that they were in, those people loved each other. There was a love that was so powerful and so tangible and so life-giving and so sin-bearing. It was absolutely undeniable. And that's why Christ came. God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And every Sunday, we take the juice, we take the bread. It's a picture of the gospel. It represents Jesus Christ and his perfect life. But it also represents Jesus Christ and his sufficient death. God looked at the work of his son and the sin debt was paid and Jesus Christ rose from the grave and he's coming back again for a second advent. But until he comes, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. Remember, remember my love for you. And remember the love that you absolutely should have for each other because of my love that has been generated in your heart by my power and by my gospel. I'm going to pray, and then you come if you're a believer, if you're in right standing with the Lord and with those in his body. I invite you to come and partake this morning. Father, thank you so much for sending your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray that there would be someone here today that would believe for the first time that they can stand before you not because of their righteousness because they have none but because of Christ's righteousness and I pray that they would believe today if they're weighted down with sin that there is one who came to bear their sin and that there are those who will gather around them and this body that will walk with them to help them understand when they look in the mirror that they're not idiots, but that they are beloved. And, and Lord, I pray that you would just weigh heavy upon our hearts today just the reality of the impact of our relationships with each other. As husbands sit with their wives in, in these chairs, I pray that they would be reminded of uh, the, the, the weight that... Uh, a husband loving his wife carries. I pray that we would recognize the weight of us genuinely loving one another. I pray that we would recognize the weight of our countenance and the weight of our words and just the weight of our presence. When we just go and sit down on the sofa and act like nothing matters but that person in front of us. I pray you would help us today to be life-giving and sin-bearing as your people. And I pray, Lord, that while there will not be any news flashes of the sightings of God in McDonough, Georgia, there should certainly be this sustained amazement at his presence that is seen in the lives of those 
who love each other with your love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I invite you to come this morning.